Listener Production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Welcome to Episode 5 of The Trials of the Vampire. Last time, Shane Chartres-Abbott was due to give evidence in his own defence. From the witness box, he planned to expose what he claimed was a corrupt network in Melbourne that included police, magistrates and high rollers at the casino. June 4, 2003 would be the day it all came out in a rush, but Shane feared he would not live to tell his lurid story. The day before, outside court, he told his counsellor that he was marked for death. His barrister tried to have his home address suppressed, but it was already too late. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome you all to the auction here at number 84 and 86 Howard Street in Reservoir. In April this year, the house where Shane and Kathleen lived, 84 Howard Street, went up for auction, along with the property next door. The agents called it a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. 1,330 square metres of land, obviously both houses as well, and one of the best attributes for it as well, obviously. You've got the side laneway there. Broadway shops just behind us. You cannot get a better location. It is literally in the heart of Reservoir. I expected other media to be there. There's a morbid fascination with the sites of infamous crimes in this town. But I was the only one there. Maybe this story was just fading into history. It was likely the buyer would bulldoze the site for apartments. Among the hopefuls and the onlookers were the long-term residents who remembered what once happened here. Yeah, but reservoir is not the same reservoir it was even them days, isn't it? Yeah. What is it now? It's all changed. Yeah, it's a different culture, yeah. You'd have to say it's one of the shabbier houses in the street. It's kind of double-fronted, uh, weatherboard, pretty steep pitched roof, chimney at the front, no front fence, just a kind of scrubby lawn and... These struggling trees and, yeah, not much love in this house for a long time. But it is remarkably unchanged from the photographs I've seen of um, the murder scene itself. It really is like you could... This could be June 2003. Smaller than it looks, right? Yeah, yeah. I walked through the house before the auction. It was a warm autumn afternoon, but inside number 84... It was cold and dark. And this was Shane's bedroom, as I understand? Yeah. Smells of damp dust. On the morning of June 4, 2003, Shane stood at this window, peering through the blinds into the street. Kathleen told the police in a statement that something had stirred up the dogs. An actor is playing Kathleen here. I remember the dogs were barking. They were running around the house and getting up in our bedroom window and barking. Looking out our bedroom window, you can see into the street. Shane had a look out the window because we thought my dad had arrived, because we were expecting him. But Shane said, I can't see anybody. They only bark when someone is around. Earlier that morning at 7.45, Shane had reported to the local police station as part of his bail conditions. The constable on duty said Shane was wearing a suit and tie. 
He was calm and polite, more like a job seeker on his way to an interview rather than a rapist on bail. He would probably give evidence that afternoon. All the pieces of the jigsaw would finally come together, exposing the conspiracy he'd unwittingly walked into, or so he believed. There was nothing left to lose. The vampire gigolo was already dead. Shane was barred from working as an escort while on bail and he was on sickness benefits. He had just 39 cents in his bank account and the change in his pocket, but as usual, he was optimistic. With a baby on the way, he was thinking of a life beyond sex work, beyond Melbourne. He might even head back up to northern New South Wales where he grew up. He and Kathleen could raise their kid in the sunshine and leave all the intrigue of this bleak city behind. It was all going to happen once Shane was acquitted. All right. For 84 to 86 Howard Street in Reservoir, who'd like to start me off? Ring your hands. You call it out. Fair and reasonable price. Kick things off and get us moving. I stood on the street as the bidding began, slowly at first. Third and final tie at 1650000 we all done, all silent and finished at 1.65. I mean, the sun's out, I don't mind getting a tan. It's a Saturday, I have to stay here all afternoon. As the auctioneer cajoled and beguiled the crowd, I pictured the scene that unfolded in 2003, just a metre from where he stood. At 8.45, Kathleen's father, Jerry Price, arrived. Soon after, Shane, Kathleen and Jerry left for the train station, five minutes walk away. Kathleen's sister, Frances, remained at home asleep. Actors have recreated the evidence given by the witnesses. I walked out the front door first, then my dad, and then Shane. I was trying to get out the door quickly to shut it before one of the rot wheelers got out. He's a pup. I didn't notice anyone out the front of the house or in the street. At 1.675, one seven to keep us moving. Dad and I walked along the grass beside the driveway. Shane was behind us. Just before we reached the footpath, I saw two men running towards us, quicker than jogging, on the footpath, side by side. I walked down the driveway and Shane was a bit behind me and Kathleen a few paces behind also. 1880. Round me off to 1.9. At 1.880, your call. First. Second. I would have been next to the letterbox when out of the blue I felt a blow to the head. I don't know what hit me or from where. The blow caused me to fall to the ground. One of them pushed me onto my knees and then I saw a grey handgun in his right hand. His hand was bare, I didn't see gloves. Then the man with the gun moved a bit closer to where Shane was and I heard Shane say, oh my God. 1.9, strong bid, gentleman wants it. Gonna call it three times. First, second, third, 1,910,000, selling. Selling! Selling! Sold! I heard two shots, one straight after the other, and that's when I put myself right on the ground, face down. The shots were like a popping noise, like a cap gun, not really loud. It took about a second before I got to my feet and I saw two men about 50 yards in front of me running into the laneway next to the house. I would describe both as males, both of average height, not short, One of them had a dark-coloured balaclava or beanie over his head. I didn't get a really good look at them, but one had, I think, a grey jumper pulled up over his face with just his eyes showing. 
The other had a black scarf and a beanie with just his eyes showing as well. They were running towards the Broadway. They turned right into an alleyway that runs behind the Broadway shops that leads to a car park. That was the last I saw of them. I looked up and saw blood coming from Shane's throat. He was lying on the ground. I could hear him gurgling the blood from his throat. Just after the shooting, one of Shane's neighbours, an eight-year-old boy, was riding his pushbike to school. His mother, Marilyn, recalled the day clearly. He's seen Shane on the ground with the blood and he went to school like nothing had happened. And the teacher asked him what happened and he drew the picture of everything. That he's, You get what I mean? Yeah. And when he come home, I said, why didn't you come back? And he goes, it was none of my business. For a mindset of a kid, he was only eight. He was eight. Marilyn tells me her son went on to commit violent crime. He's been in and out of jail since his teens. You wonder if that day had anything to do with it. The trauma of an incident like this ripples out in all directions. Even now, even now, every time I go past, I think of Shane. I've got to say it. I look in the house and think, God, I can still see it to this day. Him just lying there and covered. Kathleen's sister, Frances, and a neighbour tried desperately to stop the blood flowing from the wound in Shane's neck. Another bullet had passed through his left forearm and into his body. But the shot to the neck would have killed him almost instantly. He was dead before he hit the ground. Critically, neither Kathleen nor her father observed the actual shooting, only the lead-up and the aftermath. Just how Shane was shot, from what range, and which round hit him first, would have been important in identifying the murderer. As you'll see in later episodes, this was all glossed over. In breaking news, reports are coming in of an incident in Howard Street Reservoir. Police and ambulance are on the scene. It's understood a man may have been shot. Neighbours called triple zero a short... Shane's lawyer, Ross Privatelli, was parking his car in the city when the news came over the radio. It was uh, just prior to nine o'clock and um, the street name was mentioned and that was it. I I knew straight away. Sandra Gibson arrived for the day's hearing to meet Shane and the lawyers, but the courtroom was deserted. And then I go into the court and there's a tip star guy there. So I I said, look, what's happening with today's trial? He said, oh, haven't you heard? Shane has been killed. He said, yes, there's police and ambulance out there at his place now. He said, he's been shot. At that point, just every little you know, sort of bubble of blood just burst inside and flowed out of me. And and almost, uh, well, perhaps not immediately, Kathleen's sister calls me and she tells me, uh, she's quite agitated, she was crying, she was screaming, and she said that Shane had been killed. All right. Uh, Now, I don't know how I was concentrating because I was still in the car. I don't know how I was even concentrating, but I uh, somehow started to backtrack and head out towards the northern suburbs. Everything was cordoned off. Look, I, I, it was terrible for me. I mean, it was horrible. I, I got to tell you, I can't even recall whether... I, I remember where I parked my car and uh, I remember that I had to get through. The police let me through. But I don't really recall much after that. I don't recall. Really, it's just amazing. That it's the most critical thing and I just can't, uh, can't recall it. Um, but I, I do recall... I mean, it was my job to get... A report back to to the court. Privatelli informed the court of Shane's murder. At 11am, Judge White summoned the jury. It was a surreal moment for everyone. Reading the transcript, the shock and uncertainty comes through the dry, courtish language. 
George Slim was the prosecutor. But underneath, how were you feeling at that time? Dry. <laughs> Dry and courtish. At that stage, I'd heard the news, I knew about it, I got a shock when I heard it, and I couldn't help wondering whether it's connected with the fact that it got, uh, the application to not publish his address was knocked back. You know, it crosses your mind. Judge White addressed the jury. An actor is narrating. I want to thank you for your service here. It's been a difficult trial, and it's been a difficult trial for all parties, including myself. Yesterday afternoon, you may wonder why I sent you home early. And I said, there's some technical things that need to be fixed up. Well, the technical thing that needed to be fixed up was that there was a reference to the accused man's address in some material that was about to be placed before you. And I wanted that address deleted, and that was the reason for my so doing. So the tragedy of the situation is that it appears that somebody did find out his address and there have been fairly dramatic consequences as a result. Only once before in Victoria's history had a defendant been murdered during a trial. In November 1979, armed robber Raymond Patrick Bennett was shot dead inside the old Melbourne Magistrates Court building. The shooter was almost certainly a rival, Brian Kane, but the crime remains officially unsolved, much like the shooting of Shane Chartres Abbott that he himself had predicted. Did his words come back to you of the previous oh, day? And many, many times they echo. They're the words I've never, ever, you know, lost. I remember those words so strongly and I just thought, oh, my God. The whole sanctity of what one would, you know, see protection in has just totally exploded. There's nothing nothing to be, no safety to be gotten in that anymore. In the first hours after Shane's murder, it felt as if a veneer of security around the court and its functionaries had been stripped away. Shane's barrister, Alan Hands, spoke to Ross Privatelli and Sandra Gibson. I think he came and he just said, um, OK, so this is highly dangerous. Uh, we need to look after ourselves. Um, things like bones where you live, all that kind of stuff. Because we were the people that were closest to Shane. There was no one else in the court that was advocating for Shane outside of his barrister, his solicitor and myself. So we were very observable, e easy to find. And I guess the thought being that if Shane had shared various pieces of information that he was then given the court, yeah, that the, may have yeah, put the, you at risk as well. Yes, and also, like, I, I knew that I was the one that had most of that information, like, about Shane. And perhaps the people that, you know, would have been threatened would have certainly worked that out. Mm. That I'd had this, you know, quite ongoing relationship and what, what has he told her? But you didn't know. I was even, in the first couple of days, I'd walk out of my chambers and I'd look around in case, I don't know, maybe they want to get me next. Who knows? I don't know. 14 years later, discussing that day stirs unpleasant memories in Shane's lawyer, Ross Privatelli, feelings he never properly dealt with. It was one of his last criminal cases. Uh, I didn't have a very good day uh, that day. I mean, I, we probably finished at court at three o'clock, came back here. Of course, the staff here had known and they had all got to like Shane. He'd come here and go around the back and have a cup of coffee. The girls all mixed well with Shane. He was, he was affable, they all liked him. Um, and uh, so it was pretty sombre here at the office. I couldn't do very much work, I think, and I went home. But a mate of mine came over that night and his, his way of 
working things out with me was to bring over a couple of bottles of wine. And Do you think you could have done with a bit of counselling? I mean, it's, it was... Oh, a... yeah, re- re- seriously, yeah. I, you don't think about it. And it's a little bit of a delayed reaction for me. I wouldn't have thought about it. I honestly wouldn't have thought about it. In hindsight now, yeah, I reckon I probably should have uh, sought some type of uh, counselling. But you, you don't think like that. You think it's a file. It sounds awful. You know, it's not, it's not a file, of course. It's a human being uh, who you're doing work for, but it's a file and you... And you've got obligations with other matters. And Shane's file would be left open forever. His barrister asked for an acquittal, but he no longer had any standing in the court. There was no client to represent. The Crown declared a noli prosequi, Latin for we shall no longer prosecute. The case against Shane would be dropped, but that's not the same thing as an acquittal. This is one of those matters that there'd been no solutions. There'd been, nothing's been resolved. Uh, nothing had been resolved for the victim. He was terribly injured. She didn't really want him to die like that. She uh, she just wanted him to be uh, be punished, but not to be killed. Mm. So, um, so far as the legal system's concerned, it's unresolved. Um, for Shane, it remained unresolved. For Shane's partner, it was unresolved. Then, of course, uh, people were charged for his murder, and, and that has uh, resulted in acquittals. So I guess that means that we don't know who who, who murdered Shane. Well, we don't. I mean, we have one person who's confessed to it who the physical evidence just doesn't support his contentions. So it is a a, a mystery within a mystery within a mystery. After this break, the police investigation begins. Welcome back to The Trials of the Vampire. In the hours after Shane Chartres Abbott was shot, police released information about the killing to the media. The public soon had a general picture of what had occurred. It was a professional hit. Chartres Abbott was accosted by two men as he left home with his girlfriend and her father. The men assaulted the older man and then shot Chartres Abbott twice, once in the neck. They fled on foot down a lane beside Chartres Abbott's house, then north through a car park on Bedford Street. Despite a large police search involving the dog squad and a police helicopter, no trace of the gunman was found. The suspects are described as thin to medium build, one wearing a beanie and a scarf, the other had a jumper pulled up concealing his face. The finer details, such as what calibre of gun was used and from what range, were known only to the killers. Remember, the witnesses did not see the weapon actually discharge, but there were clues left behind. At 11.40am, Dr David Ranson from the coroner arrived at Howard Street and described the crime scene and the victim. He noted the wound on Shane's neck was surrounded by blackening and punctate marks. This is typical of a shot fired from very close range. Unburned powder and debris spreads out from the muzzle and impacts with the skin around the entry wound. It causes a stippling or tattooing effect, the so-called punctate marks the coroner referred to. At 6pm, Ranson conducted an autopsy on the body. Before he began, a homicide detective named Clive Rust collected gunshot residues from the palm of Shane's left hand. According to his report, Ranson observed a dark, soot-laden abrasion around the wound to Shane's neck, and there was powder tattooing on the surrounding skin. This suggested the muzzle of the gun was almost against Shane's skin and the path of the projectile supported this. It travelled upwards through his neck, severing the brain from the spinal cord and into the top of his skull. If this was a professional hit, this evidence made it different from the norm. Underworld executions are rarely carried out up close and personal like this. Unless, of course, it is personal. The hired killer wants to hit and run. 
Charlie Bazina served 17 years in the Victorian Homicide Squad. This is a hit, clearly. What does that tell you um, where the, the shot is so close? Well, it tells you it's a personal. It's very personal. You know, and secondly, that they did, they wanted to make sure that he's going to die. Does that mean that if he has survived, he could identify the offenders? That's one proposition. You couldn't say it was an overkill. I've been to homicides where they've bludgeoned someone to death and they've cut their throat. That's an overkill. That shows a crime, not so much of passion, but of personal, that the offender was personally associated to the deceased. But is it such a hate? Is it a hate upon this victim to say, I'm going to kill this mongrel because of what he's done? You know, they become judge and jury uh, in that driveway. Initial inquiries into Shane's circle of friends and associates yielded no suspects. However, the publicity generated by the death of the so-called vampire brought a steady flow of leads. The investigation was codenamed Operation Clonk, and detectives filed more than 150 information reports over a decade. We don't know what they all say, only what the police chose to release to the lawyers for the accused in the murder trial, and some parts have been redacted. Victoria Police declined to release the rest to me, but I was very surprised at how much was available and what it said about the investigation. The first piece of substantial evidence came nine days after the murder. Actors are playing the part of the investigators. Information received is that Mark Andrews is an ex-boyfriend of... At the time of the assault on... Andrews was in contact with her. Now, remember in episode three, we learnt that a man named Mark Andrews called Penny a number of times before and after the rape. Investigators in the rape case traced that phone to Darwin, but the address provided to the telco turned out to be fictitious. Now, bear in mind, they didn't yet know Andrews was in fact Mark Adrian Perry. Penny didn't tell the police that until years later. But Mark Perry was certainly well known to other police. The drug squad had six information reports on his trafficking network, but as yet, he wasn't a person of interest in the murder. A juicy hint came in a call to Crime Stoppers on June 16. Caller stated they were phoning about the murder of the male prostitute. Police should talk to her ex-boyfriend, Mark, aged 37 or 38. Caller stated he is violent, he is a drug dealer, he has been charged with drug dealing before. Caller described Mark as being 5 foot 11 inches, about 85 to 90 kilos. Australian Caucasian with blonde hair and muscles. The caller was a local car dealer, Max Walker, who on the side distributed Perry's pills and powders in Melbourne's gay club scene. In a follow-up interview, he gave investigators a full rundown on Mark Perry. He said he was in a partnership selling drugs with a man named Roberto, whose family were once a force in inner-city Melbourne. Perry had told Walker that he wanted to get Chartres Abbott for raping Penny, whether he was in jail or not. Roberto wasn't happy about Perry carrying on about killing the vampire and advised him to wait. It might have been enough to pull Perry and Roberto in for questioning, but that didn't happen. As the police gathered intel on Mark Perry, Shane's loved ones and friends were coming to terms with his death. The funeral was a tense and surreal affair, in keeping with the tenor of this story. Sandra Gibson, Shane's counsellor. Oh, it's bizarre, absolutely bizarre, and, and just dark, you know, heart-wrenchingly dark. Just kind of like I'd never been to a funeral like that. I, this is my first exposure to anyone that had been killed under such, you know, like dark and murky circumstances. And also, like, I didn't know what other family, I didn't know what other connections he had. So, I, I mean, I presented to the funeral with um, a work colleague of mine. And as soon as we arrived, you could just feel that 
very dark energy and like you could feel the surveillance on it and that's why I brought a work colleague with me because I didn't really want to stand out I didn't want to be with his girlfriend or mm. be seen to have that sort of alliance and I can remember like just it seemed to be a heavy undercover police presence or something there there's no official record I can find of any police presence, covert or otherwise, at Shane's funeral. It was a small turnout anyway. Few of his family were present and his social circle was small in Melbourne. That's what it felt like. I can remember, I think I was sitting sort of, you know, fairly close to the front and this young woman just came screaming like totally, like hysterically and, you know, uncontained, like seemed like highly emotional, but also probably quite substance affected. Just wailing, really wailing and screaming. And and as I've come to know, that was, well, it was Joanne, his, his sister, yeah, at the time, which was the only one of his siblings that he really spoke about. It's worth taking some time away from the police investigation at this stage. From here on, Shane begins to fade away in our story, at least as a man. The facts of his case will be distorted and misreported. Eventually, he will exist only as a symbol, a catalyst in a chain reaction which will run right through the corridors of power in Victoria. Ross Privatelli again. Shane, <laughs> he would have loved it. <laughs> he would have loved it. The notoriety. I mean, yeah. you know, the, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm the vampire, and I'm still, <laughs> I'm still doing all of this. That's what he would have said. He wouldn't have believed it, of course. He was all tongue-in-cheek. He said, there I am. Yeah, everyone's paying for these sins of mine. <laughs> Shane's demise signalled the disintegration of the Chartres Abbott family. On the first anniversary of his death, Joanne was found lying in a suburban street, badly bashed and psychotic, raving about her brother's murder. In August 2006, she perished in squalid and pitiful circumstances. Cleo, the prostitute, died of a cocaine overdose after a night partying with two clients in Sydney. Her half-brother Ashley died not long after, having spent his last days destitute in an abandoned car. The patriarch Frank withdrew from the world after Shane was killed. I obtained a letter he wrote intended for the media, but it was never sent. Shane was not only my son, but he was my best mate. He was a wonderful son and a friend to me, whether at home or when on the road working as a salesman. The phone would ring, hello dad, guess what? And he'd tell me about a sale he'd made or a joke he'd heard or about a woman he'd met. I knew every detail of his life during those long 10 years. Frank claimed that Shane had instigated a reconciliation with his father. One evening, about 11 years ago, I had a phone call from Shane. Would I like to see him, he asked. And when he realised I was no monster, he took a taxi from Lismore, 30k away, and he came to see me. One of the questions I'm asked is, how has his murder personally affected me? Well, I know he's dead. I know I'll never see him or hear him again. I have no animosity against those who did it. Uh, that's something they have to live with. Forgiveness is easy for me. I guess it'll be like when I lost my other son five or six years ago, and when I lost somebody very dear to me over 30 years ago. Perhaps this was a reference to the death of his second wife, Heather Joyce Stevens. You'll recall in episode two when his daughter Bettina accused him of running Heather, her mother, over with his combi van in 1972, but he was never charged. Frank was an atheist by this time, but he expected to meet Shane and Heather in the afterlife. He went on. 
There are things I want to ask them and things I want to tell them. With Shane, I know it's going to be tougher. When I hear someone say, guess what? I sometimes burst into tears. Shane was my life. Many people want me to relive it all as a cure. Some suggest prayer. They're not at all pleased when I say, if there's a heaven, there'll only be two up there. The dog Biggles and Shane. All Frank had left of Shane were the bedtime stories he'd recorded on tape for his favourite son, Tales of Adventure, a boy and his faithful dog roaming the tropical forests of northern New South Wales. Everything real was in ruins now, so Frank retreated into his story time. He clung to the bogus French origins and even added a royal title to become the Count Francois Chartres Abbott. Isolated from his family, Frank stayed in his ramshackle house and casino waiting for death until a compassionate man named Bert Morris came along. Well, the first memory I have of our dear Francois is I was just walking my dog and I came along a pond of broken down fence and I saw this old gentleman there. And I said, good morning. Anyway, we had a little bit of a talk and later on I called back and we, we developed a really wonderful friendship. And when you met him, he was more or less withdrawing from the world. He had a note on his door, you know, beast, you know, no entry, etc. But somehow or other, he and I clicked. I seemed to come along at the right time. Bert encouraged Frank to keep living. He took him on outings and helped him record the kids' stories he'd written for Shana's talking books for the blind. Biggles wagged his tail even faster and let out a, an enormous howl for joy. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Granddad must be as mad as you and Biggles. <laughs> he never shared his sordid and violent past with Bert, and I didn't have the heart to destroy the image that Frank had created. What did you know of Frank's background? Did he ever talk about where he'd come from and his history? No, he didn't. No, no. He, I knew that he had uh, a daughter in, uh, in yeah, back in France. Uh, although he was married and had many children, you know, he, well, he did withdraw from everybody towards the end, but thank God I was able to more or less come to his rescue. Eventually, Frank opened up to Bert about Shane's fate. He said, my, my son died. Oh, he was murdered, he said. From a man of his intelligence, so intelligent uh, and so giving of himself that his son was taken from him was more than a tragedy. It was a stab in the heart for poor old Frank. When the Count died in August 2011, Bert Morris buried his mate's ashes under a pine tree. The epitaph included Frank's favourite line on the sacred mystery of death. The end. Or is it the beginning? And I often sit and talk with Frank, you know. I feel his presence because he was such a, a delightful person. It was a privilege to meet that gentleman, truly. He was a, yeah. a, a true count. This is certainly the end of one chapter in this story and the beginning of another. In the next episode of The Trials of the Vampire, the police investigation into Shane's murder drifts. But then an inmate makes a sensational confession. As a result of police investigations into other matters, I've decided to cooperate with police in relation to the death of a person. I believe his name was Shane Chartres Abbott, otherwise nicknamed in the press as The Vampire. The Trials of the Vampire is a real crime production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby. Listener.